Well, we jump back into our study of this great book of First Thessalonians. We've been here since around the first of the year, and we're in this wonderful portion of the book that gives so much practical discussion about the Christian life. Uh, it's such a rich, rich portion of this book, and I think you're going to find it to be so eminently helpful as we walk through it over these next number of months. And as we think about that, I want you to remember back to when we began our study in this book some time ago, and some of you may not have been with us, so I want you to hear at least and remind yourself and perhaps even learn for the first time what what the whole of this book is about. Sometimes we, we dig in so much to the, the granular details, we forget where it fits in the whole of the book. So I want you to remember what we said when we began this study of First Thessalonians, in that introductory message that we gave to the whole of the book, we summed up the theme of the book as grow in what you know. Grow in what you know. And the reason why we, we entitled it that is because there is a repeated phrase you will find throughout this book. And it is a phrase, there's one phrase, it's really just one, one particular word, the word oida in the Greek New Testament, and it's the word for knowledge, as you know, as you know, repeated 17 times in this book, as you know. On a few other occasions, and we'll even see some of those today, Paul will say in this letter and suggest that they don't need any more instruction on a particular issue because they already know what to do. They've heard it from him, they've seen it from him, they know the truth. So what do they need to do with all this knowledge? They're a very well-taught church. What are they to do with it? Well, we see an example of it in chapter 4, verse 1. At the end of it, you need to excel still more. We see it in verse 10 of the passage that we're going to be looking at today in regard to love. What do you need to do with the instruction on love that you already know? You need to grow more in it. You need to excel more in that love. That's why where we get the aim of this book, you need to grow in what you know. And I think just like the, the Thessalonians, we modern Christians, we possess an embarrassing amount of wealth in regard to biblical instruction and teaching. We have so much at our disposal, books, the web, how many Bibles do you actually own? I mean, we have an embarrassing amount of material in front of us. We are a well-taught people. In our congregation, we give so much time and attention to teaching the word. I have no doubt that many in our church are very well taught. And if you're new to the Christian faith, we, we are here to help you understand the truth of the scripture. But at the end of the day, what do we need to do with all that instruction? We need to grow. There's never a point in our Christian life where we just settle down and say, all right, that's enough. No more information. No, no more need for me. I've kind of reached the place. This is as good as it's going to get in my life. No, we have to grow in what we know. Now, the Apostle Paul, in the last portion of this book that begins in chapter 4, even calls it, he even says, finally then, which means, let me get to the, the remaining, the final things that I have to say. Let me get to the rest of the issues I haven't dealt with yet. He begins his final portion of the book really emphasizing the practicalities of the Christian life. In fact, the first two verses was uh, a general introduction that outlined a number of helpful ground rules of how to grow more in what you know. And if you did not hear that message, if you did not engage with that, I would encourage you to go back and, and re-listen to that portion. It's all the ground rules that say, here's how you grow as a Christian. Here's how you grow in what you know. Now, last week we started back in chapter 4, verse 3, and we began to look at one of the first issues that he wanted to address after those general ground rules. What kind of practicalities do we need? And we considered the first one, grow in purity. A second priority for a Christian growth is found in the passage you heard read for you this morning in verses 9 to 12. We grow in purity, yes, because immorality is a constant problem. But on the heels of that, what else do you need to grow in? You need to grow in love, and love is the theme of these verses. You need to grow in love. In fact, as we noted last week in regard to impurity, if impurity actually steals and defrauds, it takes advantage of people and defrauds them, 
then the natural segue to consider next is how to proactively expand your love. How do you actually love and grow in love? If immorality is not love, it's false love, then how do you grow in true love? And I think the reality is every Christian knows that love is at the heart of Christianity, and you do love, and you do love in wonderful ways. But as Paul will say here, you need to grow in it. There are probably aspects to loving each other that you don't think about very regularly. You don't consider in detail. The basics of love are obvious, but the nuances of love may need some more exhortation for you to consider it more specifically. So what we find in these verses, chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, is what I would refer to as a recipe for growing more in your love. How do you grow more in a gospel-oriented love for others in the church? What's the necessary ingredients for you then to grow in your gospel-oriented love? We wanted a gospel-oriented purity. We talked about last week. Let's look today at what are the ingredients that help us grow a gospel-oriented love. There are three of them in our passage, three different ingredients in this recipe that grows a gospel-oriented love. They're very easy to see. I think the last one that we'll look at is very different than what you probably expect. But it's something we need to rehearse together. They're simple, they're straightforward, as Paul does here. He doesn't spend a lot of time here. He assumes you know a lot. But nonetheless, he he parks it here for a moment to say we need to reconsider how we're thinking about love. Three different ingredients in a recipe that grows a gospel-oriented love. Number one, very simple. Remind yourself about loving others. Remind yourself about loving others. Believe it or not, you need to do this. You have to be proactive at it. You have to be intentional about this. You need to remind yourself about loving others. Why? Well, you know this. I know this. If you've been in the Christian life for any amount of time, love is fundamental to discipleship in Jesus. It's fundamental. It is at the core. Loving others is fundamental to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Jesus' earthly ministry an occasion where, it's recorded in Luke chapter 10, in verse 25, a lawyer, which means an expert in the Old Testament law, likely a scribe who... The scribes of the Old Testament law were used to writing down the law and they had written it down so many times they became experts in the law. They were the, they were the attorneys of the Old Covenant. A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now he's not honest in the question. He's deceptive in the question. He's trying to set Jesus up because if Jesus emphasizes one thing, he's going to come at another angle because he's an expert in the law and try to catch him and then discredit him in front of everyone and so people will stop following Jesus. So he says, I want to know, what do I have to do to have, to inherit eternal life? How do I know that I one day will have God forever in eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? Which is Jesus' kind of sarcastic comment there. You're a lawyer. You don't know this. What's written in the law? And then he quotes, how does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You remember that, don't you? How Jesus responded to that lawyer. And he said to him, the lawyer said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live, Jesus said. Do you remember the lawyer's response after that? 
In verse 29 of Luke 10, it says, but wishing to justify himself. What does that mean? Jesus just said, if you want eternal life, you must love God comprehensively. And you must love others. Now, the lawyer, who's an expert in the law, probably thought, I love God adequately. I know the word. I know what the word says. I'm an expert in God's word. But the text says, in his heart, he wanted to justify himself in regard to what? Probably the second part. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So I have to love my neighbor as myself. So I think I love pretty well. So let me justify myself and what I think about my love. Let me ask you, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And you remember where Jesus went. He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan where an undefined man was traveling to Jericho. He's violently robbed and left for dead and two of Israel's most theologically decorated and supposed spiritually vigorous personalities see the dying man on the side of the road and did nothing to help him. Passing by them, they assumed that loving God was probably found more in distancing themselves from this supposedly unclean man than helping him. Only then, in the story, Jesus says, a man who most Jews would assume would not and could not follow God at all, a Samaritan, comes along to tend to the dying man's needs in the most self-sacrificial and generous manner. What was the illustration about? The illustration is not about what loving others as yourself means. You might assume that. Oh, this is what it means to love others as yourself. That's, that's not really what Jesus was after. What Jesus was using that illustration to describe was, do you love God? Because if you loved God, you then would care for your neighbor. It's built in. It's inherent. It's automatic, as it were. If you really loved God comprehensively and you saw your neighbor on the side of the road dying, you would stop. So the question is not, how do I love my neighbor or who is my neighbor? The question is, do you love God? Because remember his original question, what do I have to have to have eternal life. Do you really know God? Your love is the answer to that question. To ignore the needs of others out of an assumption that those needs will dirty your spiritual condition or perhaps they are a disruption to your engagement in more holy matters is to say you don't practically know what it means to love God because love is fundamental to discipleship it's fundamental to eternal life in Jesus which is why Paul in our passage says what he does here look down at verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 4 now as to the love of the brethren you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another As to the love of the brethren, you don't need any more written instruction. Now that's an interesting phrase, the love of the brethren. Some versions would read brotherly love. It's one word in the Greek New Testament. It is the word Philadelphus. Can you hear an English term from that? Sure, the city of brotherly love, except if you're a Cowboys fan. We were not going to go there. The season's early. Philadelphia. From two Greek words, philos meaning love or actually affection. Philos is a kind of family-like affection. Adelphos is the, the other term in Philadelphia. Adelphos, that's a brother. It is the affection for a brother. It is a family-like love or to call it brotherly love is to simply say you have a family kind of affection. 
And I think we all likely have some understanding of what that looks like. You love those who are in your family. There is a, there's an innate sense of loyalty that you have for those who are blood relatives of yours. We all understand that kind of family kind of affection. But here Paul is not referring to blood relatives, is he? As to the love of the brethren, as to brotherly love, he's not referring to simply your loyalty to those who you have a blood connection to. He's referring to those who are in your forever family, the eternal family, the more eternal family that you possess your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus even said as much in the most striking illustration of this issue in Luke chapter 8, verse 19 and following, he it, depicts an occasion where his mother, Jesus' mother, and his brothers come to him. And they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. In Luke 8, 20, it says, and it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Now we all know, if mom shows up, you better answer the door. You can't leave her waiting. Other matters can wait. Mom is at the door. And brothers, you know, the brothers, maybe we'll get to them later. But mom is there. You don't turn your back on mom. We all understand that's, that's Philadelphia. That's family affection. And Jesus answered and said to those who were telling me, hey, mom's at the door. He said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Who is Jesus' family? Those who hear the word of God and they apply it. Those are your brothers and sisters. In fact, those are the family members that will actually last as your family members forever, eternally. 26 times in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul refers to these Christians as brothers he really feels a family-like connection to them. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter use this term for brotherly affection, family-like love, a number of times. In Romans 12.10, we are told to be devoted to one another, be devoted to one another, be loyal to one another in Philadelphia's brotherly love. Hebrews 13.1, let the love of the brethren, brethren, let Philadelphia's continue. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere Philadelphia's love of the brethren, you've purified your soul spiritually for what purpose? A love of the brethren, then fervently love one another. 2 Peter 1.7, in your godliness, add brotherly kindness. That's the same word, Philadelphia's. Brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, add love. So we're talking about how to love each other within the family of faith. And that is actually critical to our discipleship. It's critical to our discipleship. I mean, you, you think of this... If someone were to ask you, if someone just randomly said, hey, describe to me, how would you describe your personal love for God? My guess is there's not a Christian here, or I would, I would hope there's not a Christian here who would say, I think it's fine. I don't think it needs to grow anymore. I got the love of God down. You know, there's no greater depth or width that needs to happen to my love. I think most Christians are looking and saying, I love him, but I want to love him more. But what about the flip side of that? Well, tell me about how you love each other. I think we might not always say it, but there's something inside of us at times say, I think I'm doing all right in that. We would never say that about God, but we might say that about how we love each other, which is interesting when Jesus back in his parable of the Good Samaritan said, the way you love your brethren shows whether or not you love God. This is really a critical issue, isn't it? It's fundamental to discipleship. It's a plain biblical fact. And no one actually has to tell us that. I think we all know it instinctively if we've been in the faith for any amount of time. We're to love each other. Paul says that much. You have no need for anyone to write to you. You know it. Now, why don't you need anyone else to write anything more about this? Because God himself has taught you this. 
God has taught you to love one another. This is really significant. In other words, you are God taught. God has taught you is one word actually in the Greek New Testament. You're taught by God. It's never used by any other author. Paul is the only one who's ever used this word. You can't find it even outside in secular Greek. This is a word Paul coined. He, he made it up. He does that all the time. I guess when you have the Holy Spirit inspiring you, you can do that kind of thing. You're God taught. God has personally taught you this. Now, what does he mean by that? What does Paul mean that you are God taught? I think fundamentally, he's referring to the kind of language that's connected to what we, in biblical studies, and what is referred to in the Old Testament as the new covenant. So you have the, the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, but there's a new covenant coming. A new covenant that comes that is connected to the Messiah. Jesus launches the new covenant, the new way to relate to God, the ultimate eternal way to relate to God. The new covenant begins. Now, in the Old Testament, it's really interesting. When some of the writers refer to what happens in the new covenant relationship under the Messiah, listen to what they say about how people relate to the instruction of God. For example, in Isaiah 54, 13. In the new covenant, it says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. All the brethren will be taught of the Lord. They will be God taught. What does that mean? Similar to Jeremiah 31, 33. That's really all about the new covenant. When the new covenant comes, the Lord says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write that and no one will have to teach them anymore. It's what the apostle John actually refers to in 1 John 2, 27. As for you, the anointing, likely a reference to the Holy Spirit, which is the sign of the new covenant. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. You have, as a Christian, an anointing. You have the spirit. You're taught by the Lord himself. It's internal And he means by that you have an internal law written inside of you by the Spirit of God as opposed to like the old covenant which was written by the finger of God on stone tablets and it was external to you. So in the old covenant you look to an external law to obey that law. In the new covenant it's written in the heart and it's it's somewhat instinctive. It doesn't mean that you don't need someone to point out what God's word says or explain some of it, but you you know it when you hear it and you know instinctively what you're to do with God's word. The spirit is there. So I think that's a part of what Paul means here. You're God taught. You don't have to have someone else to teach you. This is a part of what it means to be in the new covenant. You don't have to be taught this because God teaches you that by being a part of this new covenant family. But I think he means even something additional to that. He probably means that God has taught you this in his word before. This is not new instruction. This is in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's Old Covenant, and it's inherent there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. That's what motivates you to do it. God has taught you this. Jesus himself echoed this truth in his own earthly ministry in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. The, the new commandment is, that not, is not that you would love each other, but that you would love each other as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, Jesus, God in human flesh taught us this. We don't have to have somebody else come along and teach us. Jesus has done this. The Apostle John, much of his first epistle has a lot to do with what love of the brethren looks like. And I would encourage you to go study through the third chapter of John's first epistle, 1 John. 
But let me just read to you a portion out of chapter 4. It's really stunning. And I want you to hear what he says about loving others and loving God. 1 John 4, 7. You can turn there if you'd like. It's really a passage you, you probably need to rehearse and remind yourself of often. 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 7. Just let your eyes rest on this and think about it and remind yourself of it. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Can you just stop there for a moment? For a moment. By this, the love of God was manifested. How did God teach us about love? He showed us love in that He sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That is immense love, and God showed it to us. In this, verse 10, is love not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The son came and he satisfied all of the wrath of God towards sin for us. That is immense love. God taught us. God showed us this kind of love. Verse 11, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we've come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. He goes on. Verse 20, if you jump down there. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. What does that mean? You, you can't hate your brother and say you love God. It goes back to that parable of the good Samaritan, doesn't it? Answering the question, not how do you love your brother, but do you love God? Verse 21, this is the commandment we have from him. This is the commandment we have from him. Who taught you this? This is a commandment from God. That no one who loves God, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I think that's a lot of what Paul's referring to back in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. God's taught you this. He showed it to you. He's commanded it. It's inherent because of the spirit who is within you under the new covenant. You know this. You know this. You probably know that when you come in contact with other Christians in other parts of the world or maybe you walk in here and you start a relationship with someone who loves the Lord. There's this instinctive enjoyment of one another. There's almost a loyalty that is from day one because you know you're together in Christ. That's inherent in us. It's fundamental. You know what we need to do with that is just remind ourselves of that, don't we? Don't you need that reminder every now and then when it starts to get a little, there's a little bit of friction that begins to build? You're a little frustrated with X, Y, and Z, and and maybe you're right. Maybe you're the one in the right. And you just have to remind yourself, so how do I love each other practically? How do I love the brethren? Why would I love them? How has God loved me? You just need to remind yourself of it. Constantly, daily, regularly, intentionally remind yourself of what God has taught you about love. He has taught you. Start there. First ingredient, 
remind yourself about what it means to love each other. The second ingredient in our recipe for growing a gospel-oriented love is found in verse 10. Expand your love for others. Expand your love for others. This is really an encouraging verse. It's really helpful. In verse 10, after saying, you don't need anybody to write to you about loving God, he gives this encouragement, for indeed, you do practice it. I mean, you do love the brethren. You practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. And not just in Macedonia, but did you notice the all Macedonia? The whole of the region. This is really significant. Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica, was the capital city of the region in the northern part of the Greek peninsula. The northern region of that area is called Macedonia. Thessalonica was the capital city of that region. And they're not merely loving the people in their own congregation, which, by the way, is really the easy part of Christianity. Right? We, it's easy to love the ones who are sitting here today, even if it's hard. It's easy. What's harder is to love other Christians who aren't in our congregation because we might differ a little bit with them on this and that. Or they're not just right here with us all the time. So there's a little bit of pragmatic challenge to that. But these Thessalonians didn't just love the people in Thessalonica, but those brothers and sisters in the whole of the region. I take it that they're not just having an affectionate heart for them in this love for them, but they're actually showing tangible expressions of their affection for these brothers and sisters throughout the region. And I think that because the believers in Macedonia at this time when Paul is writing this letter are experiencing some extreme persecution while Paul is away from them. You remember... Paul was run out of the city of Thessalonica. He moved south. Jews from Thessalonica who were jealous pursue him south. Paul is actually run out of the entire region. He's not allowed to step foot in the region at this particular point in time. His life was on the line if he did that. He's, he's writing them likely from much further south, maybe in Athens or Corinth, down in the, the region of Achaia, the southern part of the Greece, the Grecian area. But these were ministering to one another even while Paul wasn't even there. And what do you think that looked like? Well, in persecution, it's likely that property was being taken from other brothers and sisters in Christ. Some were being murdered. Some were suffering perhaps isolation from family members and left on their own. Perhaps there were financial consequences and losing positions and jobs or no one would buy or sell with them or trade with them in the open market because they're Christians. So the love that the Thessalonians are having for people throughout the region is probably not just saying, I'm going to write you a warm, affectionate letter. They're probably going and, and helping people who've lost their property and housing people who have no family left and perhaps trading with them and doing business with them because no one else will. It's very tangible. In fact, we have an illustration of that that the Apostle Paul mentions for us. I just want you to jot it down and listen to the kind of affection that these people in this region, this church, have for other Christians. Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul wants to take up an offering from some of the churches in this region and send it to the saints in Jerusalem who are suffering under a famine. He, and he wants to take up this collection himself and bring it with him, per, him personally to Jerusalem. And I want you to listen to what he says about the saints in Macedonia, of which Thessalonica is the capital city. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That would include Thessalonica. That in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Isn't that amazing language? They have nothing but an immense amount of joy which made them overflowing with anticipation to give financially to someone else. What? Right. He's stunned by it. He says, for I testify that according to their ability, meaning we're not going to compare the Macedonians to the Corinthians. According to the, their ability, what they actually had 
and beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord. No one had to pressure them. They just did it. They wanted to. They were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. They're begging Paul, can we please give to this offering? Have you ever met such Baptists? I am dying to give more money. And I don't have any, but I'm going to find a way. They're begging. And Paul even makes this statement in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. I mean, if you want an illustration of what brotherly love looks like, they were so eager, overjoyed to give beyond what they even possessed because they love God and the saints. So when Paul says, you do this, there's practical example all over the place. You do this. And it's wonderful. You practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. And then Paul comes in with this, but. There's always a but, isn't there? But we urge you. We plead with you. Excel still more. You know a lot. You're even doing a lot. You don't have to be taught anything else. You have enough knowledge. What do you need to do with it? Grow. Can you ever really say, I've loved too much? I think you could say, I've loved wrongly. I think you could say, I I haven't loved in the best way possible. I may need to adjust what is most loving here, but you probably can never look at someone and say, I think I've just loved you too much. Unless it's godless kind of love, an idolatrous kind of love, but you're not going to have godly love too much, right? I mean, has God ever loved you too much? Think about that. Has he loved you too much? He can't love you any more than he already has because he's expressed eternal love toward you already. So there's always room to grow and I'm not suggesting that you need to be reckless and poor stewards and give financially when finances would actually not be what really assists someone and it wouldn't really show the proper kind of love. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But love to the degree that you have been loved by God. And if you're ever wondering about that, then you need to dwell on it a little bit. Let him be the standard and not others around you. Let the borders of your love extend to the borders of God's own love in your own life. Where have you found yourself at any point in time saying in your heart, I think I've, I've, I've done enough and I don't want to extend myself to this person anymore? They're rock hard or they just, they're, they're like a sponge that's never satisfied. They just take and take and take and take. And I, I, I just don't want to do, I've tried and I've tried and I haven't got anything back in return or every, what I do get back in return is not encouraging. I think Paul would look and say, expand your love there. Expand your love there. Maybe you need to adjust what you're doing. You may need to re-examine what is the most loving thing that I could do here. How would God want to show love to that person even if they are not loving or responding appropriately? We could ask ourselves a question just like we see here in this passage. Are there other believers in other churches in our area that we could show better love toward Are we struggling with showing love? On Sunday evenings, we will pray for other churches in our region. I remember we've prayed for a number of churches and I've actually had some people say, hey, I'm I'm just curious, why do we pray for that church? Well, as long as they're preaching the right gospel, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We may have other challenges, we may see things a little bit differently, Uh, We're not necessarily joining their church. They're not joining our church, but they're Christians. So the minimal thing we could do for another congregation is to pray for them. 
We could do that, can't we? Expand your love. Grow the love. Who is it that's burned you in the past and you find yourself just reluctant to invest in them again? Because you're telling yourself, I'm just going to get the same result. I just remind you, what do you think God thinks every day about us? He loves, and what does he get back? And he loves, and what does he get back? And how many times have you confessed that sin to him? How many times? And how many times has he wiped you out for it? No, you're still here. (laughs) Because he's loved and loved and loved and loved, and he will not stop. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that every expression of involvement is the most loving action. I'm not saying that. Some don't need money. They, they might need friendship. Some don't need more time. They might need actual assistance. Some may need prayer. Others could use the study of the word together with them. Others might be helped to replace poor thinking with biblical thinking. They might need that. You have to ask what's most loving and how am I going to do it again? How do I expand it? How do I get beyond just being satisfied with where I am and how I'm loving other people? That's really challenging. I'm challenged by that. Expand your love for others. So you remind yourself about God's instruction on how to love each other. You just remind yourself we're taught by God. Secondly, you expand your love. Beyond what you're currently doing. Which then brings us to the third ingredient, and the final one we'll look at this morning for growing a gospel-oriented love. Position yourself to love others. Position yourself to love others. This, to me, is, is really fascinating as to where Paul goes. Position yourself to love others. Now, I, I think he has in mind here, you guys, Thessalonica, you're loving each other so well. You're loving people all throughout the region. You're meeting needs. But there are times when what you're doing in love, while good, is not all the things you need to think of in regard to how to love each other. There are other things and other places in your life where maybe what you're doing and the way you're living is not very loving and you need to expand in these areas. And I think this last ingredient for a gospel-oriented love is probably not quite what you would expect Paul to say and to emphasize when he's talking about loving the brethren. I, I mean, most of the time when we talk about love, we're like, all right, what are you going to do next for someone who's, who needs you to love them? What are you going to do for them? And that's not where Paul goes. He does not start with, what are you going to do for someone? He starts with, what are you going to do about yourself? that puts you in a position to better love other people. It's really fascinating. And again, there's so much to commend about this church in Thessalonica, and he has commended this church. He's, he's even done so here in this passage. He loves these, these Christians here, but no church is a perfect church. Every church needs to grow. Every Christian needs to grow. Now, we're not quite sure what's motivating these things as you read through verses 11 and 12 and you think about what's going on. I'm not sure that the text doesn't tell us explicitly what's causing people to be idle or lazy personally because that's where he's going to go. It's very possible that some people in these churches, maybe this is a part of what's motivating laziness and no work and the things that he addresses here. It's very possible that some are believing wrong reports about the coming judgment of God, that someone has come, we'll learn this in Second Thessalonians 2, someone has come and said the day of the Lord is here and all the persecution you're going through is the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And even in the letter where we're going to go next, some might be believing that idea and they're wondering, well, Paul didn't teach us that. He taught us something different. And if these other teachers are right, then what's happened to our dead loved ones? Are they eternally gone and there's no future resurrection and we're, this has all happened already? And so it may be that some have said, hey, if this is the day of the Lord, then I don't need to do anything. The Lord's coming back. I don't need to work. I don't need to, to do anything. I'm not going to invest myself in this world anymore because it's all about to go up in smoke. Maybe. And the reason why we would think that because the next passage is all about the return of the Lord. And even in 2 Thessalonians, all of chapter 2 is about the day of the Lord and the return of the Lord. And then he comes to chapter 3 and addresses people who have been idle and not working. So maybe there's a connection there. But he doesn't make it that connection explicitly. It may just be something we're reading into the text there. We're not for sure. 
But they do need to think about themselves in regard to how they are setting themselves up in order to love others. So how do you do that? How do you position yourself? Well, let me give you four qualities. They're pretty simple. The application of them is quite profound, I think, but they're very simple to see. Here's four qualities to cultivate that would best position you to love other people. First, be restful. Be restful. You say, you're telling lazy people to be restful? Yep. Notice the way Paul says it in verse 11. Here's how you excel still more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I think that's quite funny. Paul says, be aggressive in being quiet. With all your might, go after being still. With everything in you, be silent. Make it your ambition. It's a really interesting word in the original language. It was used of people who were very eager and zealous to provide what one dictionary says, an exceptional service to the state or other institutions. Many wealthy persons endeavored to outdo one another in philanthropic public service. This is the kind of person who's really eager to go do philanthropic things so that they can be recognized. It comes from two words in the Greek, philos, which means to love, and temeo, which means to honor. They love honor. So they do a lot of things in order to be honored. It's how we describe the word ambition sometimes. You talk about an ambitious person, they're going after something with a lot of aggression with the idea that they're going to be recognized with it. It's ambition. Now, not all ambition's wrong. And here is a right kind of ambition. Be ambitious pursue, even even aggressively, personally, publicly pursue what? A quiet life. The word quiet here is sometimes translated as silence. Silence. In other words, don't be boisterous. Don't be belligerent. Don't be obnoxious. Don't try to just gain attention for yourself. Make it your ambition to be unknown personally. You say, well, that doesn't sound like gospel aggressiveness to share the gospel. Oh, be aggressive to share the gospel. Put yourself in the background, though, as you do it. Make it your aspiration to be low-key, behind the scenes, not up front, not in everyone's face. Now again, I I don't know what the people in Thessalonica were doing that would be contrary to this, but we're clear from this that Christianity is not best represented by harshness, belligerence, public defiance on issues that are not critical to the gospel. Paul even called Timothy to warn others about such an approach to public sectors of society in their expression of Christianity, like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to this very carefully. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. What kind of men? For kings and all who are in authority. Well, why would you pray for kings and all of those in authority? And, and what's your aim and what's your angle in praying for them? He tells you, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Rebellion is not a mark of faithful Christianity. Revolution is not on our Christian flag. Preaching the gospel publicly does not mean that we're angrily accosting people. Pastors like myself need to keep that in mind as we teach the scripture each week. Confronting sin is necessary. Hostility and anger is not. All of us on social media need to think twice, maybe we need to think a dozen times, before we post our political convictions 
And when we do, we need to be very, very thoughtful about how we are saying them. You say, well, it's my page. It's my media. It's my right. It's my constitutional go on with it. And I will say, but you represent us. You represent us. I represent you. And what you're saying gives others the idea that that's my testimony too. How's that loving others? Isn't that interesting? Best position yourself to love others by being really aggressive at being quiet. And I think that means personally quiet. Be be thoughtful, aggressive, intentional about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you and I both know the gospel in itself is very offensive, isn't it? It will naturally offend someone. Just read a Bible verse and people are going to drop the hammer. But let it be the verse and not your attitude. Let it be the verse and not your approach. Let it be the passage and not your person that is offensive, right? We all understand that. But we have to think about that. Because what I'm doing publicly with myself may affect my ability to love others or how I'm loving the rest of the church because others are going to say, if that's a Christian, then these people are like that. Then I... Be restful. Be at peace in God. Don't be the kind of person that's always up in arms about everything because that would mean that you aren't really trusting that God is in control. You've got to rally the troops. We've got to make sure that everybody knows. If our public expression of our convictions breeds anger, isolation, withdrawal from fellowship, incorrectly judgmental of fellow believers, if it breeds arrogant or an overall atmosphere and attitude of defiance and opposition, then our public expression of our convictions is likely not Christianity that we're promoting because it's not the fruit of the Spirit that we are expressing. If you expressing your attitudes does not lead to the fruit of the Spirit, how can you say it's accurate and correct in representing Christ? We need to really ask ourselves the question, how hard are we actually working to be personally quiet so that our personal life does not drown out the gospel message? I'm not talking about ignoring sin among us or passing over public controversy that the scripture would call us to identify and confront. I'm talking about our personal lives being louder than the gospel contrary to the fruit of the spirit. Be restful. Secondly, Another quality to cultivate that positions yourself to love others. Be intentional. Be intentional. Again, in verse 11, you, you, you not only make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, but you also make it your ambition to attend to your own business. Yes, this phrase literally could be understood as mind your own business. <laughs> mind your own business. And he means by this, give attention to your affairs more than the affairs of others. Now, what is Paul referring to? Well, it's likely similar to what he addressed toward the young widows in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5.13. At the same time, these young widows, they learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Attend to your own business, not, not everybody else's. This is a description of someone who's so preoccupied with the lives and affairs of other people that they're actually neglecting their own. At best, they're, they're fostering some kind of inconsistency in life. You're, you're really trying to help all these other people and never thinking about where you are. Or at worst, it's fostering hypocrisy. You don't want to think about your life, but you're going to have a standard for others that you won't hold yourself to. Because you're not really giving attention to yourself. 
Now, I get it. This can be a fine line here. Paul's not calling everybody to withdraw from society. Mind your own business. Go sequester yourself somewhere where nobody's going to interact with you. And you can just get away from everybody. He's not advocating being more self-focused. This is not self-centeredness he wants you to, to approach. He's warning about an unnecessary neglect of your personal responsibilities while you become overly preoccupied with the responsibilities of other people. It's the sort of person who loves to hear the latest gossip. And they're always interested in the latest tabloid tales among the congregation and all the while ignoring their own spiritual condition. Very active in conversation, very inactive in reading the Bible. Very active to know, very inactive to pray. Attend to your own affairs. If you do that, if you're attending to your life and your affairs, you know what it does? It puts you in the best possible position position to be able to really serve other people well. Jesus did not call us to avoid the speck in your brother or sister's eye. He just called you to deal with the log in your own first. So it doesn't mean that we're going to ignore involvement with each other. We're just minding to our own lives first so that it puts us in the best place to see clearly, to help others, to serve others. Do you manage your finances in such a way that it positions you to serve other people? Do you manage your time so that it, it's useful that you can give to others? Do you manage the details of your life so that you can actually love one another? You're thoughtful enough so that you're thinking about others. There's a third quality to cultivate that positions you to be loving towards others. Be productive. Be productive. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's be restful. Attend to your own business. Be intentional. Third, be productive. Work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Work with your hands. Ah, Quit the white-collar job and go get a blue-collar job. Is that what he means? Well, I mean, most jobs in the ancient world had some agrarian aspect to it. So to work with your hands means to make sure you're working. Make sure you're working. Give attention to your work. It's tantamount to making sure that you have a job and you're diligent to do all you can do to the glory of God in that job. Now, be careful again with this. This is not a statement to bludgeon the person who just lost their job. Or if you just lost your job, don't heap condemnation on yourself with this verse. It's a statement not to the person who isn't working. It's a statement to the person who doesn't want to work. They don't pursue it. And as I found with many who never want to work, they're always preoccupied with other things. I've got a lot I want to do, but I don't want to work. This is a call to be diligent and productive and it puts you in a position that you might actually be able to give to other people. It puts you in a position to allow those who have entered into a time of providential leanness, a time that they need assistance in the church where you might be in the right place to come to their aid because you have been working. You can come to their aid. This is more about a heart issue than a providential circumstance, isn't it? I mean, what does laziness do to your Christian witness after all? And thus, to, if it bludgeons your witness, what's it going to do to the witness of the other people around you who are believers? Think about what laziness actually takes away from other people. Look to be productive for the good of others so it puts you in a position that you might tangibly love others. Give attention to your work. Don't withdraw. Work. It's good. Remember, before the fall, Adam was still tending the earth. It's a part of what we, I know, I know we are thinking about retirement, but in eternity, we're going to work. Like, what? <laughs> Don't worry, there won't be thorns and thistles anymore. Amen. It'll be enjoyable. I think it'll still be hard. It'll be vigorous. But it'll be God-centered and helpful. It's the final quality we want to cultivate in order to best position ourselves to love other people. Be aware. Aware of what? Well, look at verse 12. 
be aware so that, so I'm going to make it my ambition to lead a quiet life. I'm going to attend to my own business. I'm going to work with my own hands just as we, we know we're supposed to. Why? So that you'll behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul's already talked to him about this. This seems to be a particular problem in the church. So they're doing a great job of doing loving things for other people, but they're not necessarily all giving attention to themselves and how to best position themselves to love others long term. Some need to be addressed by this. Maybe this is one of the reasons why Paul, back in chapter 2, talked about his own work ethic and how he worked night and day, day after day, the nighttime and the daytime, so that he wouldn't be a burden to anybody. The problem among the Thessalonians is that some were so idle, refusing to work for whatever reasons it was, making themselves unnecessarily dependent on others, perhaps making a public spectacle of themselves through their loud neglect, or maybe even their personal irresponsibility, that it was impacting their witness among non-Christians. Maybe it's someone who's gaining the public eye and their vocal response to all the public persecution. Could you imagine that? This isn't right. We've got to stand up to this stuff. And yet they're urging you to stand up, but not giving attention to themselves, needy, and the whole body is having to be responsible for them. Maybe it's their personal response of idleness because of that wrong-headed understanding of the return of Christ. Whatever it is, not thinking about yourself and how you position yourself to love other people is eroding the testimony of every other Christian in your assembly. The non-Christians are looking at it and saying, that, that can't be Christianity. Or here's, here's another reason why we've got to deal harshly with these Christians because look at what kind of people they are. You get a glimpse at what this was really like in the second letter to the Thessalonians if you want to pop over to chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians just for a moment. Verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we could, would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Notice verse 10, for even when we were with you, We used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion Eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if someone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Obviously, this was an issue in the Thessalonian church, wasn't it? And it's impacting the whole community, everybody. So if you want to love your family of faith well, you have to be aware of your choices and how you're living your life. Are you restful or are you angry? Are you intentional about your affairs or neglectful? Are you productive or idle? Are you aware of your life's choices and how it's affecting the testimony of the church on others? Or do you not care? Now all of this discussion could leave people kind of leaning towards various extremes. I know that. And I think it could even breed a kind of independent spirit among us that would not be helpful or loving. And, and we, we have this sense of, I'm not going to be dependent on anyone. I'm going to be self-sufficient. Well, we have to be careful with that, don't we? There's a loving way to do that and an unloving way to do that. There's a kind of dependence upon each other that is loving, where we invite the giftedness of the rest of the body to impact our life. 
where we encourage the watchfulness of each other to protect our faith, where we welcome the fellowship of other Christians to expand our relationships. That's a kind of dependence on each other that's healthy and good and godly, where we even allow the generosity of other Christians to meet our own providential needs. That's a good kind of dependence that this text is not saying, I'm not going to allow anybody to meet my needs. But there is a kind of dependency upon each other that can be unloving, where we involve ourselves in others' affairs merely to know and speculate, not to serve, where we seek attention for ourselves in a way that brings reproach on other people, where we pursue habits of idleness and think others should provide for us. There's a kind of pursuit of independence in life that can breed selfishness and not a healthy dependence. I think it's good if you could be financially independent. That's good, but we have to make sure that that doesn't breed self-dependence, right? Be careful of telling yourself that you're going to be generous one day, but not now. Independence should still position you to involve yourself more in other people's lives within the church. So I get it. There's a fine line to watch over appropriate personal stewardship and arrogant self-sufficiency. But you look at this passage and it says we're to do everything we can to make sure we're loving each other. Remind yourself about it all the time. Let's love one another. Expand your love in ways where you haven't even thought about it or in ways where you're struggling with it. And then take pains with positioning yourself so that you are loving others with your life. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are for just a a brief time really to meditate on the word of God and to think through its instruction to our hearts. And I pray that you would bring to mind all kinds of application for us personally as we think through what you intend for us to hear. We pray we'll be careful but aggressive in making sure that we are loving one another in a way that reflects the true, genuine love that we have for you, our God. Remind us of the love of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how self-sacrificial it was, how perfect it was applied, how eternal its nature is, persistent, constant, never fading, never never ebbing and flowing up and down, but constant. We pray we can mimic that kind of love. I pray that you would convict us where perhaps we are positioning ourselves to be unnecessarily needy and dependent on others because of neglect. Help us to position ourselves so that we have what you provide in order to serve. Help us to look at the needs in our church as opportunities to express generosity and kindness and love, not frustrations. And we pray that we will love one another well so that the world would see this is what discipleship in Jesus looks like. And their hearts are melted through the conviction of the Spirit and the testimony of the church so that they submit themselves to the Word of God and they have faith in Christ. Honor your name among us as we pursue these truths together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.